There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Welcome back to this three-part series that I'm doing about War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, this classic science fiction story. I'm reading extracts from the original book, the original text. So there you go. This is part two, right? You know how numbers work. Now, um, make sure that you have either watched part one or listened to part one before embarking on this one, all right? Don't watch or listen to this until you've seen part one. If you're on YouTube and you're wondering where the uh, the first part of this series is, check the links in the description. That's where you'll find the link for part one, okay? Right, so let's carry on then. What I'd like to do first is to do a recap of the story so far, okay, just to bring you up to speed again. So six years prior to the main events of the story, explosions are observed on the surface of Mars, our neighbouring planet. But scientists assume that they are gas or volcanic eruptions or something like that, and that they're nothing to worry about. Then one night, six years later, a meteor falls to Earth in a green flash. The astronomer who finds the fallen meteorite in a pit of sand in a nearby common discovers that the object is a cylinder, um, that it's making strange noises, and that it's even beginning to open and he assumes that there must be people inside it. A crowd gathers, including the, the narrator of this story. The cylinder opens slowly, and people are shocked and horrified to see the hideous and frightening creatures inside. They seem slow and heavy, as if the Earth's atmosphere makes things difficult for them. Their appearance is a huge shock to everyone. Everyone is immediately disgusted and horrified by them on an almost gut level. Of instinct. Like when you look at a poisonous insect or spider, it makes your skin crawl. Something inside you knows that this is not your friend. One person has fallen into the pit and it's possible that they have been killed already. The narrator, although terrified, is also intensely curious about these visitors, as are the other witnesses at the sand pits where the cylinder has landed. So that's where we are. And let's carry on with chapter number five, the heat ray. Um, Okay, let's read. This is an action-packed chapter uh, with some really specific and interesting descriptive language in it. So let's get started. So chapter five, the heat ray. A ray, like a ray of light, is a beam of light, essentially. So, for example, when the sun shines through the clouds, you see rays of light. Okay, so this is a heat ray. Mm. All right, here we go. So, after the glimpse I had had of the Martians emerging from the cylinder in which they had come to the Earth from their planet, a kind of fascination paralysed my actions. I remained standing knee-deep in the heather, 
staring at the mound that hid them. I was a battleground of fear and curiosity. I did not dare to go back towards the pit, but I felt a passionate longing to peer into it. I began walking, therefore, in a big curve, seeking some point of vantage and continually looking at the sand heaps that hid these newcomers to our earth. Once a leash of thin black whips, like the arms of an octopus, flashed across the sunset and was immediately withdrawn, and afterwards a thin rod rose up, joint by joint, bearing at its apex a circular disc that spun with a wobbling motion. What could be going on there? Okay, let me just explain a couple of things. A passionate longing. A longing is a desire or a a wanting or a need to do something. He wanted desperately to peer into the pit, peer in, look, maybe look into the distance or look into the darkness. I began walking in a big curve, seeking some point of vantage. So he starts walking around the the circumference of the pit, looking for a vantage point, a place where he can actually get a good view inside, and continually looking at the sand heaps that hid these newcomers to our earth. Once a leash of thin black whips, a leash is is like a a rope or leather strap that you'd use to take the dog for a walk. You keep the dog on a lead or a leash. So a leash sounds like um, maybe a, a rope with something attached on the end of it. A leash of thin black whips like the arms of an octopus flashed across the sunset so maybe this is a glimpse of part of one of the aliens and immediately was withdrawn and afterwards a thin rod rose up joint by joint a thin rod a rod would be like a maybe a metal pole or a bar uh, rose up with something spinning on the top spinning in a wobbling motion what on earth could be going on here most of these spectators had gathered in one or two groups one a little crowd towards woking the other a knot of people in the direction of Chobham, a knot of people, a a, a close group, a small, tightly gathered group of people. Uh, Okay, so there's people on both sides. Evidently, they shared my mental conflict. There were few near me. One man I approached, he was, I perceived, a neighbour of mine, though I did not know his name, and accosted. But it was scarcely a time for articulate conversation. So he it was there weren't really many people around him he accosted one man he kind of went up and grabbed a, a guy uh who he thought was his neighbor and they didn't really have a proper conversation they weren't capable the man said what ugly brutes he said good god what ugly brutes he repeated this over and over again brutes are sort of like beasts like brutish like um large and um not sophisticated monsters. Did you see a man in the pit? I I said, but he made no answer to that. We became silent and stood watching for a time side by side, deriving, I fancy, a certain comfort in one another's company. Then I shifted my position to a little knoll that gave me the advantage of a yard or more of elevation, and when I looked for him, presently he was walking towards Woking. So the guy um, finds a little thing to stand on, which raises his position. He elevates his uh, position so he can see maybe further into the pit. And when he looked for the man, the man was, was going. The sunset faded to twilight. 
before anything further happened. The crowd far away on the left, towards Woking, seemed to grow, and I heard now a faint murmur from it. Murmur is like the sort of sound of people talking, but you can't really hear what they're saying. (laughs) Kind of thing. The little knot of people towards Chobham dispersed, so they went away. There was scarcely an intimation of movement from the pit, not even a hint of movement. It was this, as much as anything, that gave people courage, and I suppose the new arrivals from Woking also helped to restore confidence. At any rate, as the dusk came on, a slow, intermittent movement upon the sand pits began, a movement that seemed to gather force as the stillness of the evening about the cylinder remained unbroken. So because things are quiet, nothing's really going on in the pit, and new people have arrived, people are gaining confidence, so they're creeping towards the pit again. Vertical black figures in twos and threes would advance, stop, watch, and advance again, spreading out as they did. So, spreading out as they did so in a thin, irregular crescent that promised to enclose the pit in its attenuated horns. So, they're kind of coming around the pit like that in, you know, groups of people. I, too, on my side, began to move towards the pit. Then I saw some cabmen and others had walked boldly into the sand pits and heard the clatter of hoofs and the gride of wheels. So some cabmen, uh, people in control of horses and carts or horses and, and um, cabs, um, walked confidently, boldly into the sand pits. Not, it's, it's not always clear to me where the aliens are. It appears that there's the green, the common with the grass and trees and maybe a sandy area and then the pit with the aliens is in there and in any case some people with their horses have gone closer clatter of hoofs hoofs are horses uh, feet and the gride of wheels well i guess it's the sound of wheels moving along i saw a lad trundling off the barrow of apples and then within 30 yards of the pit advancing from the direction of horsel i noted a little black knot of men the foremost of whom was waving a white flag So another little tight group of people are approaching, waving a white flag. So we know, don't we, that a white white flag is the symbol of um, uh, peace or surrender or we don't want to fight, you know. I guess in the, well, we'll see. This was the deputation, this group of people. There had been a hasty consultation. And since the Martians were evidently, in spite of their repulsive forms, intelligent creatures, it had been resolved to show them by approaching them with signals that we too were intelligent. Flutter, flutter went the flag, first to the right, then to the left. It was too far for me to recognise anyone there, but afterwards I learned that Ogilvy, Stent and Henderson were with others in this attempt at communication. This little group had in its advance dragged inward so to speak, the circumference of the now almost complete circle of people, and a number of dim black figures followed it at discrete distances. So as this little group, the the deputation, I think they were called, enter, more people sort of crowd around and people start to follow them. So everyone's starting to get much, much closer to the pit now. Suddenly there was a flash of light and a quantity of luminous greenish smoke came out of the pit in three distinct puffs, which drove up one after the other straight into the still air. So three puffs of greenish smoke and 
a flash of light. This smoke, or flame perhaps would be the better word for it, was so bright that the deep blue sky overhead and the hazy stretches of brown common towards Chertsey, set with black pine trees, seemed to darken abruptly as these puffs arose and to remain the darker after their disposal. At the same time, a faint hissing sound became audible. So the smoke's popped into the air, uh, a flash, and this flash has caused everything to, to go suddenly much darker. You know the way it is, like when lightning goes off, it sort of illuminates everything, but then everything seems so much darker afterwards. Beyond the pit stood the little wedge of people with the white flag at its apex, arrested by these phenomena, meaning stopped. A little knot of small vertical black shapes upon the black ground. As the green smoke arose, their faces flashed out pallid green and faded again as it vanished. Then slowly the hissing passed into a humming, into a long, loud droning noise. A droning would be like a, something like that. Slowly a humped shape rose out of the pit and the ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out from it. A beam of light, like when you shine your torch, a beam of light comes out. But this is like almost invisible beam of light, a a hint of light coming out of it, almost invisible. The ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out from it. Forthwith, flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to the other, sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each man was suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. So with this weird beam of light, a bright glare, flashes of flame leaping from one person to the other, it was as if someone had turned an invisible jet upon them. So it's like someone had turned on a jet engine or something right in front of them, but you can't see the jet engine. Just suddenly they're just burning into flashing into white flame. It was as if each man was suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. Then by the light of their own destruction, I saw them staggering and falling and their supporters turning to run. I stood staring, not as yet realising that this was death leaping from man to man in that little distant crowd. All I felt was that it was something very strange, an almost noiseless and blinding flash of light, and a man fell headlong and lay still. And as the unseen shaft of heat passed over them, pine trees burst into fire, and every dry firs bush became with one dull thud a mass of flames. And far away towards Knapp Hill, I saw the flashes of trees and hedges and wooden buildings suddenly set alight in the distance. Wow. So he's just kind of staring. This is all happening so quickly. He doesn't even realise what's going on, really. He hasn't really realised that this flame is it's killing them. Just they're burning to death, all these people in this little crowd. Uh, and he, it just seems strange, like he couldn't really compute it. An almost noiseless and blinding flash of light. It didn't make any noise except for maybe that droning sound and just suddenly very light and then people just start falling 
And as the, the beam of light moves around, everything it touches catches fire, including trees in the distance. And the grass and the, 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 the ground caught fire in a dull thud, <sighs> like that. And far away towards Naphill, the flashes of trees and hedges and wooden buildings suddenly burning in the distance. It was sweeping round swiftly and steadily, this flaming death, this invisible, inevitable sword of heat. I perceived it coming towards me by the flashing bushes it touched and was too astounded and stupefied to stir. Stupefied is just like made stupid, like just turned stupid by shock. Uh, And to stir means to, to move. So he was too shocked to move. I heard the crackle of fire in the sand pits and the sudden squeal of a horse that was as suddenly stilled. So suddenly a, a horse started, you know, made a noise because it's obviously been subjected to this heat ray and then quickly silenced. Then it was as if an invisible yet intensely heated finger were drawn through the heather between me and the Martians, and all along a curving line beyond the sand pits, the dark ground smoked and crackled. Something fell with a crash far away to the left, where the road from Woking Station opens out on the common. Forthwith, the hissing and humming ceased, and the black, dome-like object sank slowly out of sight into the pit. Forthwith means immediately, or just then, just then. All this had happened with such swiftness that I had stood motionless, dumbfounded and dazzled by the flashes of light. Had that death swept through a full circle, it must inevitably have slain me in my surprise, but it passed and spared me and left the night about me suddenly dark and unfamiliar. It happened with such swiftness, such quickness, such speed, that I had stood motionless, dumbfounded, struck dumb. Dumb is when you can't speak, so dumbfounded means speechless, and dazzled by the flashes of light. If you're dazzled, it means you can't see because of light. Had that death swept through a full circle, it must inevitably have slain me in my surprise. To slay is to kill. But it passed and spared me and left the night about me suddenly dark and and unfamiliar. The undulating common seemed now dark almost to blackness. Undulating means like with little hills on it. Seemed now dark almost to blackness, except where its roadways lay grey and pale under the deep blue sky of the early night. It was dark and suddenly void of men. Overhead the stars were mustering, and in the west the sky was still a pale, bright, almost greenish blue. The tops of the pine trees and the roofs of Horsell came out sharp and black against the western afterglow. The Martians and their appliances were altogether invisible, save for that thin mast upon which their restless mirror wobbled. Patches of bush and isolated trees here and there smoked and glowed still and the houses towards Woking Station were sending up spires of flame into the stillness of the evening air. Right, the undulating common, the hilly, bumpy common, was completely dark, almost black, except for little signs of roads and and, um, the pale of the deep blue sky of the early night. It was dark, suddenly void of men. There were no men there. Overhead, the stars were mustering. The stars were starting to come out. 
and in the west the sky was still a pale, bright, almost greenish blue as the sun was going down in the distance. The tops of the pine trees and the roofs of Horsell came out black and sharp against the western afterglow. So there's silhouettes of some buildings and trees. The Martians and their appliances were altogether invisible, couldn't be seen, save for, meaning except for, that thin mast upon which their restless mirror wobbled. So they still got this metal uh, rod with a little thing spinning around on, on the top of it. I guess that's how they observe what's going on. Patches of brush and isolated trees smoked and glowed, and the houses towards Woking were sending up spires of flame. A spire is like the top of a church, a spike that kind of goes up into the sky. So the 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 buildings in Woking were on fire, sending up uh, spires of flame up into the evening air. Nothing was changed, saved for that, and a terrible astonishment. The little group of black specks with the flag of white had been swept out of existence, and the stillness of the evening, so it seemed to me, had scarcely been broken. It came to me that I was upon this dark common, helpless, unprotected, and alone. Suddenly, like a thing falling upon me from without, came fear. With an effort, I turned and began a stumbling run through the heather. Heather is like grass and undergrowth. The fear I felt was no rational fear, but a panic terror, not only of the Martians, but of the dusk and stillness all about me. Such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had that I ran weeping silently as a child might do. Once I had turned, I did not dare to look back. So he was struck by such panic and such terror of everything that he just ran. And he said, such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had. Um, okay. I would probably say these days, it had such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me that I ran away. But such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had. And it's almost like Yoda level English. Such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had. But it's just old-fashioned structure. Um, such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me. It's kind of a, um, it's an adverbial clause, I suppose. Anyway, I ran weeping, uh, unmanning me. So it kind of turned him back to being a child. He ran weeping, crying silently as a child might do. Once I had turned, I did not dare to look back. I remember I felt an extraordinary persuasion that I was being played with, that presently, when I was upon the verge, when I was upon the very verge of safety, this mysterious death, as swift as the passage of light, would leap after me from the pit about the cylinder and strike me down. So he suddenly felt deeply powerless, like he was being played with by something much stronger than him, like the way a cat might play with a mouse. Okay, so that is the famous chapter five with the heat ray. The first time we hear about the heat ray, which is the Martians' devastating weapon. Let me just summarise chapter five for you, just to make sure you've got it. So I'll summarise it now in, in plain English. So the narrator at the beginning of chapter five, the, the narrator finds himself irresistibly drawn back towards the crater to see more. He observes a long pole with a circular disc on its end rising from the pit other people linger, meaning kind of hang around, seemingly rooted to the spot in a mix of horror and curiosity. 
Heartened by a lack of alien movement for a period, onlookers begin to slowly advance towards the pit. The deputation, the group of scientists, walks towards the pit with a white flag. The narrator learns that Ogilvy, Stent and Henderson were part of the group. A flash of light, three puffs of green smoke, a hissing sound and a dome-like object arise from the pit. With a droning noise, the group of men suddenly burst into flame. As the invisible, inevitable sword of heat rotates, everything it touches turns to flame, including grass on the common and trees in the distance. The rotating heat ray stops before it reaches the narrator, and he realises he was helpless, unprotected and alone. He flees, he escapes, runs away, in fear, with the disturbing feeling he is being played with. Okay, let's keep going. Although the Martians seem quite weak and immobile, their technology is far superior to ours, especially the technology we had in the late 19th century. This is like, you know, guns, horse-drawn vehicles, cannons, um, pre-World War I weapons, explosive shells, but sort of World War I or pre-World War I weaponry. The heat ray of the aliens is absolutely devastating. It burns or melts everything it touches instantly and can reach long distances. Right, so what I'm going to do now is summarise the the next few chapters. In the book, the chapters go on to talk about various other things, like what the narrator does next and um, the reactions of other people and things like that. We're going to skip some of that. I'm going to summarise most of it here and then we'll get on to another little extract. Okay, right. So here's the summary of the next few chapters. So nobody understands the technology the Martians are using. Uh, Whatever the heat ray points at bursts into flame. Plenty of people around the pit have been killed and there are burned remains of their bodies lying around. Horses have also been killed as well as numerous trees and buildings set on fire. The group of scientists are all dead. After the Martian attack... With the heat ray, the crowd of people stampeded in horror. They all ran in horror and a few people were crushed to death in the panic. The Martians stay in the pit and appear to be working on something as little puffs of green smoke can be seen rising from the hole and there's noise of work inside. What are they doing? The narrator runs away in fear and eventually gets himself under control and then goes home, still not completely aware of what's going on. He comforts himself with the knowledge that the military are now going to step in, and that one shell or one bomb landing in the sand pit will be enough to stop the Martians. He sees his wife, and they have dinner. The news of the Martians travels slowly. People seem sceptical of the stories they've heard. Even the newspaper editor chooses not to print the story as he doesn't believe the account and it hasn't been confirmed by enough witnesses yet. So news travels slowly. Meanwhile, the Martians still seem to be working on something within the pit. Some people are still curious about what's going on in the sand pit, but as they approach it, they are instantly killed by the heat ray. The narrator compares the cylinder ominously to a poison dart whose poison was scarcely working yet. So a poison dart, a dart, you know, a bit like an arrow or something that might be fired or thrown or 
you know, like a poison dart, a bit of little sharp wooden dart with poison that might go into someone. And so it's like the cylinder was a poison dart, but the poison was still not really working yet. So the worst is yet to come. During the night, a second cylinder falls nearby. So another green meteor with a cylinder falls somewhere nearby. Another one. The next day is suspenseful. The military surround the aliens in their sand pit. The narrator is not allowed to go back onto the common. Soldiers tell him that nobody is allowed into the area. That afternoon, there are sounds of gunfire and explosions. The Martians keep using their heat ray, which appears to be clearing out all obstacles in its path, creating a wider and wider circle of destruction and a bigger area that nobody can enter. The narrator is at home with his wife, and at one point a big explosion nearby causes him to go outside to check. He sees the top of the nearby church sliding off and crashing to the ground, the tops of nearby trees on fire, and in fact the chimney stack on the top of his own roof of his house falling to the ground. He realises that his house is nearly in range of the heat ray, which has taken out trees and buildings between the house and the sandpit. The narrator and his wife decide to leave and pack a horse-drawn cart, which they borrow, with as many possessions as possible, and they head in the direction of London to Leatherhead, another town not far away. As they travel, there is fire and smoke behind them and the sound of weapons. The Martians are burning everything within range of their heat ray. The narrator's wife is deeply concerned about the situation, but the narrator assures her that the Martians are severely disadvantaged by their weight and inability to move quickly or breathe properly in our atmosphere. They arrive in Leatherhead and have dinner. Then the narrator has to go back to Woking in order to return the horse and cart that he borrowed. What a good guy. He's actually going to go back into that, into that war zone in order to return the horse and the cart that he borrowed from someone, from one of his neighbours. Um, as night falls, a storm comes in with rain and lightning. And as the narrator is travelling through the darkness with his horse and cart, he sees a third cylinder fall from the sky in a green flash. The horse is very spooked and is hard to control. The horse is like very nervous. Then in the darkness and rain, lit up by the occasional flash of lightning from the storm, he sees something monstrous that causes him to lose control of the horse and crash by the side of the road. Okay, so that brings us to um, another extract here from the book. We're going to look at chapter 10, which is called In the Storm. And there are some very specific and evocative descriptions here. Let's go. All right, chapter 10, In the Storm. At first, I regarded little but the road before me. And then abruptly my attention was arrested by something that was moving rapidly down the opposite slope of Maybury Hill. At first I took it for the wet roof of a house, but one flash following another showed it to be in swift rolling movement. It was an elusive vision, a moment of bewildering darkness, and then in a flash, like daylight, the red masses of the orphanage near the crest of the hill the green tops of the pine trees, and this problematical object came out clear and sharp and bright, 
So he's traveling. There's a hillside sort of over there and it's dark, but every now and then lightning strikes and he can see things briefly. He can see the trees. He can see the, a building, the orphanage. And then he can see this thing in that's moving. And this thing I saw, how can I describe it? A monstrous tripod, higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine of glittering metal, striding now across the heather, articulate ropes of steel dangling from it, and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly, healing over one way with two feet in the air, to vanish and reappear almost instantly, as it seemed, with the next flash, a hundred yards nearer. Can you imagine a milking stool, tilted and bowled violently along the ground? That was the impression those instant flashes gave. But instead of a milking stool, imagine it a great body of machinery on a tripod stand. All right. So he sees a monstrous tripod. A tripod is a, is a thing with three legs. Higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees. Striding means taking very big steps. Striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career, in its path. A walking engine of glittering metal, striding now across the heather, articulate ropes of steel dangling from it. So some some kind of like uh, tentacles or ropes of steel appear to be hanging below the thing. And the clattering tumult of its passage, tumult meaning noise, of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. So as the thunder strikes, the sound of the thing moving is like mixed in with the sound of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly. If something's vivid, it means it's really clear, really easy to see. So the lightning flashes, and it's, it's, it's visible. Healing over one way, with two feet in the air. So the way it moves is kind of like, hmm, I don't think I've got, all right, here we go. I've got a sort of an Eiffel Tower model, uh, which, you know, if you're listening to this, you can't see. This is not really a, this is not really a great representation because its legs are too stubby and it's, the top is too long. But something like that, that it's going along, um, it kind of spins along almost on its side. Like he says, imagine a milking stool. A milking stool is a little seat that you can sit on when you're milking a cow. And milking school stools have three legs. So imagine a milking stool bowled along the ground, like when you go bowling. Bowl a milking stool across the ground. So it sort of spins along, uh, clatters along on its, on its legs. That's kind of the impression that it gave. And um, with different flashes of lightning... It, one flash it came out and then darkness and then another flash almost instantly and the thing is a hundred yards closer that's how fast it's going then suddenly the trees in the pine wood ahead of me were parted as brittle reeds are parted by a man thrusting through them they were snapped off and driven headlong and a second huge tripod appeared rushing as it seemed headlong towards me and I was galloping hard to meet it At that sight of the second monster, my nerve went altogether. Not stopping to look again, I wrenched the horse's head hard round to the right, and in another moment, 
The dog cart had heeled over upon the horse. The shafts smashed noisily, and I was flung sideways and fell heavily into a shallow pool of water. So suddenly, the trees in front of him were parted, just like brittle reeds are parted. Reeds are like long stems of kind of grass, just like grass would be parted by a man thrusting through them these trees are parted by this tripod and the trees are snapped off and they they fall forwards and this second huge tripod appeared rushing headlong towards him and i was galloping hard to meet it galloping is what you do when you're running on a horse that's my galloping noise he's galloping towards it and the thing's heading straight for him and at the sight of this he lost his nerve He didn't stop to look. He just wrenched the horse's head to turn right and the cart he was was riding flipped over, uh, landed on the horse and he was thrown sideways and fell into a, a pool of water. Let's continue. I crawled out almost immediately and crouched, my feet still in the water under a clump of firs. Firs must be just like bushes. The horse lay motionless. His neck was broken, the poor brute. And by the lightning flashes, I saw the black bulk of the overturned dog cart and the silhouette of the wheel still spinning slowly. In another moment, the colossal mechanism went striding by me and passed uphill towards uh, Pyreford. Seen nearer, the thing was incredibly strange, for it was no mere insensate machine driving on its way. Hmm, insensate. There's a, there's a nice word. What does that mean? It's not a word you come across every day. Let's have a little look. Oh, okay, so I've got no internet. I've got no internet. I guess insensate means kind of um, cold uh, with no sense to it. I Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to find out. I've got no internet on my computer at this moment. Um, Collins Dictionary. Let's have a look at what they say about insensate. There you go. Lacking sensation or consciousness. Okay, so it's just not something without a consciousness. All right, so it wasn't just some cold machine, but this, he had the sense that it was sort of almost conscious. No mere insensate machine driving on its way. Machine it was with a ringing metallic pace and long, flexible, glittering tentacles, one of which gripped a young pine tree, swinging and rattling about its strange body. It picked its road as it went striding along, and the brazen hood that surmounted it moved to and fro with the inevitable suggestion of a hood looking about. So the top of it is more, it's kind of like it's got a domed hood on top, and the hood is like looking left and right. Behind the main body was a huge mass of white metal, like a gigantic fisherman's basket, and puffs of green smoke squirted out from the joints of the limbs as the monster swept by me, and in an instant it was gone. So much I saw then, all vaguely for the flickering of the lightning, in blinding highlights and dense black shadows. As it passed, it set up an exultant defending howl that drowned the thunder. Aloo, aloo. I've never known what the right noise is for that. Aloo, aloo. So it makes some uh, exultant, some sort of triumphant howl, a big noise. It kind of calls out. 
and in another minute it was with its companion, half a mile away, stooping over something in the field, stooping, leaning down over it. I have no doubt this thing in the field was the third of the ten cylinders they had fired at us from Mars. For some minutes I lay there, in the rain and darkness, watching, by the intermittent light, these monstrous beings of metal moving about in the distance over the hedgetops. A thin hail was now beginning. Hail is ice that falls from the from the skies, like frozen rain. A thin hail was now beginning, and as it came and went, their figures grew misty and then flashed into clearness again. Now and then came a gap in the lightning, and the night swallowed them up. I was soaked with hail above and puddle water below. It was some time before my blank astonishment would let me struggle up the bank to a drier position or think at all of my imminent peril. So he was totally soaked with the water. It took him a while to get his senses back and to actually think about what was going on. Wow, great descriptions. I I really love the descriptive language that is used here. So let me just give you a summary of that extract then. So on his way to return the horse, he notices a, a, a red glow in the sky, probably the fire, and then a green streak, which happens to be the third cylinder. It begins to storm, so a storm comes in. The narrator suddenly encounters a monstrous tripod, higher than many houses, smashing through the woods next to the road. As soon as it vanishes into the woods, another tripod appears, heading right for the narrator. He tries to change direction, but the cart overturns and the horse is killed. The tripod passes by. The narrator describes the two tripods bending over something in the distance, which he believes is the third cylinder. He continues on foot with difficulty, happening upon the landlord's dead body before he reaches home. The landlord is the person he borrowed the horse from. Right. That's the end of part two. And this is to be continued in part three. Again, check the link in the description for part three. The video should already be available. The audio will either be available now or available soon. So check that out. But in any case, the links are in the description, including the link for the page for this episode on my website, where you can read all of this text uh, again. Um, If you are on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe uh, to my channel to get more stuff like this. And of course, listen to Luke's English podcast my podcast for learners of English. I've got an app which is in the App Store. Just um, do a search for Luke's English Podcast app in the App Store and you should be able to find it. Over 700 episodes of interesting content for learners of English. Okay, that's the end of this part. I sincerely hope that you're enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. I love this story. I think it's really exciting. And let's get started with part three very, very soon. Leave your comments in in the comments section as usual, and I will speak to you in the next part. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.